0: you're listening to the globalist first broadcast on the 15th of November 2022 on Monocle 24 the globalist in association with UBS Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme and coming up, an historic meeting between the two most powerful men in the world. Was this the beginning of reconciliation between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping or a dance around too many differences? Also coming up, Sharia law is enforced in full in Afghanistan. We'll examine a return to a brutal way of life. Plus, we'll have the latest on Sunday's bombing in Istanbul and ask what this means for Turkey and its future. And we'll examine whether the... The next Republican presidential candidate will, and should be, Donald Trump. All that, plus the papers, the latest cinema news, and we find out why Britain wants to send a bin lorry into space. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. (laughs) First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US and Russia's most senior spy chiefs have met face-to-face for the first time since Moscow invaded Ukraine. Paris has overtaken London as Europe's biggest stock exchange. And the UN has just announced that the global population has hit 8 billion people. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, just how successful were yesterday's talks between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping? The US and Chinese leaders' first face-to-face meeting as leaders was billed as a chance to air obvious tensions, such as those over Taiwan. But was there some space in the room in Bali for conciliation? Well, Paul Rogers is an international security advisor at Open Democracy. Good morning to you morning. Um, so let's begin with what Joe Biden said. He summed up the three-hour-long meeting as open and candid potential flashpoints between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. I mean, they are numerous, aren't they?
1: They're numerous, but the main one, of course, has been Taiwan. Uh, in other areas, you could say flashpoints. The, the Chinese attitude to Russia uh, was not in many ways acceptable to the United States in the past from the in some ways, rather narrow Washington view, and there are other issues where there's been far too little cooperation, namely on things like uh, climate breakdown and decarbonisation. There seems to have been some progress on the on some of these. Uh, none at all on Taiwan, and essentially China gave a very strong warning to uh, uh, to Biden on this. On the other hand, the meeting seems to have been relatively friendly. And in, in, in a way, it does break some new territory. And that may well be developed further, not directly with China, in the G20 meeting, which starts over in Indonesia today. But overall, I think where there has been some progress is a mutual concern about the risk of, uh, of nuclear war. And um, that, in a way, is, is something of a kind of threat to, uh, to the Russians. It means that the Chinese are standing back a little bit from that. There seems also to be progress, although we'll see much more coming out of the Bali talks on the whole issue of climate breakdown well gets the impression that the chinese like the americans uh, now see this as a, a growing threat uh, biden has clearly had some success in this with his results in the recent elections and that he can carry on with those policies that would have been in doubt i think if they'd lost the senate but the point about this is that's a huge issue And there's going to be a lot of pressure from countries across the global south in Indonesia in the next couple of days. So I think if there's going to be one area of progress, it may be the slightly unexpected area of the relationship between the United States and China on the issue of climate breakdown.
0: Paul, just let's develop this on Taiwan. This is the great flashpoint between the two, isn't it? Mr. Biden warned uh, Mr. Xi that China's aggressive stance towards Taiwan threatens stability in the whole region. Um, The Chinese replied quite simply that Taiwan's independence was as incompatible to peace and stability as fire and water. This is the huge gap, isn't it? And we have seen this year that... Both sides really ratcheting it up. It's only four years, four years, four months, I should say, since Nancy Pelosi and her visit to Taiwan sort of launched a depth charge to the relationship between China, responding with hugely powerful um, military muscle flexing.
1: Yes, and it's a very big issue. Uh, One of the problems in all of this is behind the scenes, where you have two very large countries, probably the new, well, definitely the two most powerful countries in the world in a military sense, there's a huge momentum within their respective military-industrial complexes. And you see the whole tenor of the United States complex as moving the the whole issue through towards uh, the Western Pacific. Uh, The United States military feels that that is where bluntly the next war will be and you know everybody hopes that will never happen. But I think what we have to see here is that on the Chinese side as well, there will be complex politics going on internally about how heavily China arms. Uh, as far as the Chinese are concerned, you know Taiwan is a substantial offshore island. Um, it, it is an integral part of China, that's how they see it. And I think in some ways issues would have been easier as far as the west was concerned if you hadn't had the huge clampdown on Hong Kong. And that, in a way, is what has made the West much more wary, particularly the United States, of the way that uh, China is moving in this direction. She, however, seems uh, really much more concerned with his position. He feels much more secure having started this third term. And it's probably s- sh- uh, true to say that as far as China is concerned, she represents the, an era in which one person holds power at a, a level which you haven't seen in China for several decades. So it, there's a lot of potential here. On the other hand, you notice that one possibility of coming out of Bali is with a lot of expressions behind the scenes about the move towards a sort of more warlike world, there is said to be some sort of statement likely to come out talking about the dangers of what they call an era of war. Now, they're using that sort of phraseology. there's diplomats working on this, essentially because they don't want to sort of say in the open that this is really all about Ukraine. But it is wider than Ukraine, and there is a palpable concern much across much of the global south that we're moving into rather dangerous times And many people would actually include Taiwan in that. Now, at least if you're seeing that at a global level, that is a start. But I'm afraid it's a very small start, given the risks that we face in the coming years.
0: And staying with you, Paul, could Taiwan rely on the United States to come to its rescue in the event of military active aggression by China?
1: I'm afraid that is the big question. I wouldn't wouldn't even dare to give an opinion on that. And the problem is that if most analysts are really very cautious about that, that is a cause for concern. Um, one's guess is that if there was some sort of major conflict, uh, there would be some kind of intervention from the United States. And um, the risk, of course, with two nuclear powers is that this could escalate out of control. Because in this area, I don't think the the uh, the, the American uh, possession of nuclear weapons as strategic forces would actually cut very much ice with China. Uh, This seems to be an issue which she simply will not budge on. And the problem is, if he even seems to budge on it to any fairly small extent, it is seen as a sort of a loss of influence by him within his own population. So the the potential here is considerable, but at the same time, both countries will realise that we're moving into an era where a major war like this would have absolute global consequences. I mean, Ukraine has been bad enough. The other thing you hope for is that at some time uh, the major world leaderships will recognize there is a common problem for everybody and that is climate breakdown and maybe they have to sink some of their differences much more than they would want to to face this common pro- uh, problem hope I, I just hope that is not sort of unduly optimistic one hopes that may be something which will develop in the next four or five years.
0: One thing that was noticeable was the duration of the, the, the meeting. It was three hours. And you were talking about being hopeful there. These two men have met eight times. They've phoned each other five times. Joe Biden having um, worked through the Obama administration with Xi Jinping. Is there any traction in their personal relationship which could add in, impetus to this hope of which, of which you spoke?
1: Well, people could say that one is clutching in straws, but with, with, sto- with <laughs> clutching with straws to say that I'm not sure. I think there is a relationship here because, in a sense, Biden and uh, uh, and she uh, were pretty significant in their meetings when essentially she was extremely powerful already in China, although I'm not the leader. And Biden, of course, was the vice president. So he had an absolute power base within the United States, at least in diplomatic terms, you know, Air Force 2 and all the rest of it. So yes, I think there is a, a probability here that there is some degree of personal relationship which can develop. And one has to say in these circumstances that could be pretty, you know, a lot more important than on other occasions.
0: And there are signs that there will be more contact. We've got Antony Blinken going to China now. Next year, there now becomes a sort of a fresh chapter, isn't there, in managing a relationship which, as you've said, is so key to the rest of the world?
1: I think that is the one thing to get out of this. I mean, the meeting has been held. Um, it wasn't directly concerned with G20, but the G20 states will have been watching this extremely closely. It's been held. They got on well. They set aside three hours. I, I understand they weren't necessarily expecting that would all be used. It was. Uh, and so, although Taiwan, as I say, is the big issue, the sort of the gorilla in the room, uh, that was not allowed to completely dominate the session. So, to that extent, one can say, a slightly more optimistic, at least the ice has been broken on what has been a very tricky relationship over the last two years.
0: Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Monocle 24. This is the Globalist. <music> We head now to the United States, where the Republicans are in the middle of a bitter blame game over why the red wave that they were predicted to enjoy in the midterms never materialised. Well, a lot of the finger pointing about the GOP's failure to retake Congress in the midterms has been over the role the former President Donald Trump played. It is in this rather than less favourable context, therefore, that Mr Trump is expected to announce in the next day or so whether he'll run once again for the White House. Well, Chris Lord is Monocle's US editor and joins me on the line from LA. Hello, Chris. Hello, Emma. So the announcement by Mr Trump has been planned for today, the 15th of November.
2: It has. And if he goes ahead with it, I mean, it won't be necessarily out of character for him to... Uh, sort of do this kind of thing anyway. But really, the voices clamoring telling him not to do it are just mounting up all the time. You referenced there uh, the finger pointing around the Republican Party's dismal uh, performance in the midterms, in as much as there wasn't a big red wave as, every- as everyone expected. The Senate has remained, of course, with no clear majority, but ultimately remain in Democrat hands and could even go a-, a Democrat majority in the Georgia runoff. Um, but also the House is going to be probably likely won by the Republicans by a much smaller majority than they expected. And a lot of them have put this at the door of Donald Trump. And it's been right through the party. I mean, you know, you see senior figures saying that the caliber of the of the of the candidates who have been backed by Trump, these people who made themselves through the primaries, uh, backing all those ideas that the former president has come behind, which is that the 2020 vote was rigged, that uh, there's, a, there's a cabal of people trying to keep him and the people out of power and so on these candidates fared quite poorly. And we just saw overnight the um, governor race in Arizona be decided with Carrie Lake, who was very much a pro-Trump candidate, but endorsed by the former president, parroted many of his lines. She did not win, and now is going to be a Democrat in the, in the seat of governor, as, as, as governor there in Arizona. Now, despite all this, the expectation is that Donald Trump is probably going to go ahead with this intention to to announce his bid for the presidency. Uh, And I think that there is two ways to look at this. I mean, in part, while these midterms do show us that there has been candidates who he's backed who simply have not landed with many, many voters, at the same time, many of these races, just like the Arizona one we saw announced overnight, will raise a thin majority in in favor of Democrats. So there are still many, many voters out there who believe in the former president. And I expect that knowing him uh, and the way of uh, how he can rouse his base when he wants to do, he will probably still think that he's he's in with a fighting chance.
0: So we can't just simply say that when it came to the midterms, the high-profile candidates that Mr. Trump endorsed, such as Carrie Lake, were responsible Mm. for Republican losses?
2: We can't say that, no. I mean, it's not just simply down to to that. I think what's happening here in America is there is a, a growing desire for stability, and some sense of uh, a stable playing field. I think there is a growing weariness with the politics of the last six, seven years. Uh, there is a desire to see, especially with the economic headwinds that are coming down the down the track, and Americans are looking to countries around the world, not least Britain, and seeing what potentially a recession might look like uh, in, in the months to come. They're looking for some kind of stability, and I think that those candidates that Trump backed didn't present that kind of stability they're looking for. And and I think also as well, it's not, you can't completely put it on the character of Trump. However, that all said, of course, we just look in the last few days, just how much the Republican establishment has turned against Donald Trump. You know, Mike Pence, his former deputy uh, has been out. He's got a book out in on Tuesday, the same day that Trump is expected to announce his, his intention to run for president. Mike Pence has got a book out in which, you know, he talks about those years in the Trump white house. He's already, commented on him calling Donald Trump reckless, saying that he put he and his family in danger on January 6th when the uh, the Capitol uh, building was stormed in, in Washington, DC by a pro-Trump mob. You know, there is so many key people in the Republican establishment that are turning against Trump. And I think there is just a feeling, they're catching the, uh, in, in the wind, a turning of those voters who did want to back the president. There is just, even those ones who maybe have backed him very solidly before, a feeling of a change of wind and a change of direction.
0: So, if you were Donald Trump, what would you do, Chris?
2: God, what would I do? I think I, I think first of all, I would listen to what people are saying because while he has been a very headstrong in the past and defied so much polling, establishment logic, I guess in many ways, I do feel there is a change happening here in America where the populism that has defined the last few years. Uh, has really is starting to run out of rope, and and I think the economic realities are, are driving that in part. I think also as well, he must be quite worried about what's happening with with this subpoena for for the January sixth committee. This is the group that has been investigating what happened on the during the riots in Capitol Hill last year. You know, Don, Mike Pence's statement is pretty strong to say that he Donald Trump put he and his family in danger suggests that he's possibly getting ready to give some 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 really clear evidence and maybe say something pretty damning towards Donald Trump. That seems to be the suggestion from these statements that he's made to the press and potentially in this book as well, That's out on Tuesday. I think he must be worried. And I think that at the same time, Don, Ron DeSantis down there in Florida who clinched that uh, governorship of Florida for another term with a huge majority, he's a formidable character. And I think Donald Trump, if anything we know about him, here is a man who hates to lose. And so he might want to read the runes a little bit and see where this might be heading for him.
0: So there are characters in the wings who could replace him, because up until now, it has been the Trump show.
2: I think conservatives of any stripes, you know, they want to see election winners in place. And I think Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, put it quite well overnight. You know, he said, I'm I'm sick of losing. And I think that's the feeling. Uh, around the Republican Party right now. They look at someone like Ron DeSantis, who in many ways encapsulates some of the pugnaciousness of Donald Trump, uh, some of the, certainly the economic policies with regards to tax and 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 what have you, and, and where his favor lies uh, in terms of low tax and, and sort of small state economy and what have you. But I think they also see the astonishing uh, majority that he got in those midterms and that's what decides this. That is ultimately where uh, the, the powers that be in the Republican Party will go. They want a, a an election winner. Donald Trump now has just, if you like, even though his name wasn't ultimately on the ballot, back backing those candidates who've been trounced in many cases around the US, he's just lost his third election in a row. And that should be uh, a signal really across the party that, that his days are numbered. There are challenges in the wings. Um, whether they're quite the big personality of Donald Trump, it's going to take a Trumpian personality to to, to battle that off. Uh, but I think that the, the tide seems to be showing, and now it'll be that race to twenty twenty four. And I really do see Ron DeSantis lining himself up uh, to go for that nominee bid.
0: Chris Lord in Los Angeles, thank you so much for joining us on the Globalist.
3: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of
1: the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
3: To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: 720 here in London now. Afghanistan's Taliban leader has ordered judges to fully enforce aspects of Islamic law, including public executions, stonings and floggings and the amputation of limbs for thieves. The Taliban has been enforcing Sharia law for a while since seizing power by ousting the government last summer. But this is the first time an official instruction has been issued. Lynn O'Donnell is a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine and a regular voice on Monocle 24. Good morning to you, Lynn. Hi, Emma. Just recap Sharia law and the way it is enforced in in Afghanistan. It's brutal, isn't it?
4: Well, it's the Taliban's interpretation of of Sharia law. And yes, it is brutal. It harks back to their first turn in power in 1996 to 2001, uh, when uh, we did see public amputations, hands... Uh, that had been cut off thieves, alleged thieves, hanging in public spaces, women in burqas executed while kneeling for apparent uh, crimes like uh, adultery. Yeah, it's brutal. And the Taliban said, and a lot of people swallowed it before they took power on the 15th of August last year, that they'd be more moderate, a little bit more modern, uh, could be trusted this time round. And this is um, yet the latest Um, uh, introduction of uh, rules and regulations, if you like, um, uh, from on high, from Haibatullah al the supreme leader, that's basically been the encroachment, the slow strangulation of human rights and freedoms under the guise of what they call Sharia law.
0: Tell us a little bit. I mean, you said there was a promise, wasn't there, and that people swallowed it. There's a sense there that this was always going to be what was going to happen.
4: Well, anybody who knew the Taliban um, and many, many Afghans did, of course, um, didn't believe that it was going to be any different. Um, a next time round, and that's as it has proven to be. But I think um, what we have to do is also look at it in a more strategic way. The Taliban believe that they are... Um, legitimate and that they deserve the diplomatic recognition that is being withheld from them. They're also um, fractured factionally. There's the hardliners and there's the more within the Taliban uh, parameters uh, moderate side. The moderates would like to see girls go to school for instance but for more than 400 days the schools have largely been closed and completely closed to uh, teenage girls at secondary school level. And um, I'm reading in the Afghan uh, media in exile that universities are also to be closed to women uh, from the next school year. Uh, So um, what you see is uh, one faction, the hardliners, um, exerting their influence over the moderates, and uh, it's sending a message to the international community Um, We bleat on about women and the way women are treated at great length and with increasingly uh, loud voices. But I think what's happening is that these sort of laws, regulations, the horror of the way women are being treated, all happening while the entire population is going hungry. People are selling their kidneys and their children so that they can afford food is all about sending a message to the international community that look how bad we can be. They're desperate for diplomatic recognition and I, I really do think that this is a play, that if we make uh, the way we treat women um, specifically and the broader um, uh, horror of of uh, amputations and public executions more generally um, uh, uh, part of who we are, then um, the international community will get the message that there will be no concessions until we get diplomatic recognition.
0: I think that's a fear that we have to be very aware of. So, how how successful do you think that ploy might be? Because um, many would common sense would dictate that if you have a a nation which is doing that to its citizens, you don't engage with it; you shut it out.
4: Well, you know, where Afghanistan is um, strategically, geographically is very important. But also what the Taliban have done since they took power last year is um, reward all their jihadist and terrorist uh, fellow organisations with a uh, safe haven in Afghanistan. It's basically become a geographical centrifugal uh, point for a global jihadism. And I did ask um, Tom West, who is the American um, uh, official in charge of Afghanistan affairs, um, was this the policy? Because I can't, I can't get my head around what uh, American policy is towards Afghanistan, where the logic is. And um, he said to me, in all the meetings that I've been in, I've never heard that wording used. And I I just can't get my head around why he would say that instead of answering the question, yes or no. It's not about the wording, it's about policy. People are dying of hunger. There is no work. Uh, jihadism is thriving. You see it spreading to uh, the, the borders with Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, it's become a problem inside uh, Pakistan where... Uh, the Taliban, uh, Tariq, uh, Taliban Pakistan, which is basically an offshoot of the Afghan Taliban, are now terrorising the tribal areas there. Thousands and thousands of people are taking to the street. There is civil war brewing. Um, and this is all emanating from the Taliban's success in Afghanistan. It's a dangerous place. It's probably the most dangerous place in the world now. And I think that there is a fear that it will become a, a, there will be a spillover of that um,
0: if the Taliban aren't appeased. Is there any sense of dissent at all in Afghanistan against what is happening?
4: Well, we we regularly see groups of women take to the street very bravely, um, objecting to and protesting about the way their rights have been um, Eliminated. They've been totally marginalised, marginalised from society, banned from work and school. So that happens. But they are publicly whipped, and those uh, videos of them being whipped by uh, Taliban with sticks and and um, uh, uh, armed men shooting above their heads are regularly released. So we know that that happens. But that's it. Unlike in Iran next door, where um, the uh, protests have been joined by um, broad demographics of society, men are not protesting in Afghanistan against these sort of um, strictures. Uh, there are pockets of war where there are groups of um, armed uh, men uh, fighting and killing Taliban, but um, uh, it's it's very limited and isolated, and so far it's really just um, pockets of resistance that the Taliban are, are, are handling quite brutally. So I guess the short answer there, Emma, is no, there isn't really any effective resistance, although there is widespread misery.
0: And what about the dissent from within the Taliban themselves? I mean, we, this order has come from the leader, um, Haibatullah Akhundzada, uh, someone who has not been filmed or photographed in public since, uh, since August last year, when the Taliban took power back again. You mentioned a moment ago the idea of a civil war. Is there often this misconception that the Taliban actually act as one?
4: Well, they certainly kept it together until they took over. Um, They they were um, very good at uh, presenting a united front. But once they got into power, then the fighting, um, the cats in the bag start to fight among themselves for the spoils. And we do have very powerful people. Um, the Minister of the Interior for the Taliban is a man called Siraj Haqqani. He's the head of uh, the Haqqani Network, which, which is a brutal Al Qaeda affiliated uh, Taliban offshoot responsible for most of the um, worst uh, suicide um, attacks of the war. And he um, is extremely powerful, he controls large parts of the country, um, huge um, swathes of uh, productive agricultural land. He's now trading uh, with, with China. That's making him even more wealthy. And then you have the uh, faction that is controlled by Haibatullah Arkansada, the supreme leader, and um, they are the, uh, you know, the religious hardliners. And, and these are the factions that are really pitted against each other and so far. The um, the religious uh, leadership of Highbuttula Akunzada is is um, in charge, in control.
0: Lynn O'Donnell, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Twenty Four. You're listening to the Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. <music> Let's hear more now about the bomb attack on a busy area of central Istanbul. Six people are now known to have been killed in the blast on Sunday afternoon in a shopping street in the Taksim Square area. Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Mary Fitzgerald, Monocle's North Africa correspondent. She was in Istanbul this weekend, currently joining me on the line from Iraqi Kurdistan. A very good morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Emma. So you were in Istanbul and not far from the bomb itself, weren't you? Yes,
5: indeed. And just for for listeners um, to explain, Istiklal Street is the one of the main arteries of central Istanbul. It's a very long, uh, completely pedestrianised street at any time of any day of the week. It's very, very busy on a Sunday when the um, when the bombing happened. It was packed with with shoppers, tourists and people just, you know, strolling around on on a Sunday afternoon. My hotel is very close to Istiklal, so I heard the initial explosion and also the the panic, if you like, that ensued in the surrounding area. And then the, the street on which my hotel is located, there was a suspect bag found on the street, which meant that street was cordoned off and the security forces carried out a controlled explosion on that suspect bag indicating um, the the alarm and and the concern amongst the the Turkish security forces that there may be other um, devices elsewhere in the area. It's worth reminding um, listeners also that um, this bombing is the first in in several years in Istanbul, but there was a period between uh, 2015 and 2017 when there were a number of uh, bomb attacks in Istanbul, including suicide bombings on Istiklal Street itself. So there was a sense on on Sunday of of real jitteriness. Um, Once my hotel, I was able to access my hotel again, um, I left for the airport and there was very high security at Istanbul Airport again, another location in Istanbul that had been targeted um, by bombers uh, before.
0: You said this is the deadliest bombing in Istanbul since it was late 2016, wasn't it? What has caused this shift now?
5: Well, the, the period between say 2015 and 2017, we saw a number of bombings um, happen in, in Istanbul. There haven't been a number uh, there haven't been bombings in, in the last number of years. Many questions about who may be behind this. Uh, one woman, well, several people have been arrested um, in, in the fallout, um, including the alleged um, bomber, uh, a woman. Um, She was caught in security footage, um, uh, apparently dropping the bag in which the the bomb was was contained. Um, The nature of this attack, given that it wasn't or doesn't appear at this stage to have been a suicide bombing, um, has, has kind of pointed people in different directions in terms of possible perpetrators. Um, the Turkish government, um, for its part, has um, publicly blamed uh, the PKK, the Kurdish group. Uh, the PKK has denied responsibility, as have other Kurdish groups. So the question of who's actually responsible, given that there hasn't been a claim of responsibility just yet, remains open.
0: So how much might this damage um, Turkey's economy? It's that issue, isn't it, that its dependence on tourism and and its love of visitors might be off-putting when going to Istanbul is not seen as safe as it has been recently.
5: Well, I was discussing this with some uh, Turkish friends uh, later on Sunday evening, and you know they uh, talked about the city's uh, resilience. I mean, going back to those dark years uh, not so long ago where there were a number of suicide bombings right on Istiklal and in other parts of, of the city and elsewhere in, in Turkey, and Turkey bounced back. You know, Turkey is, is, is now suffering from high um, inflation. Um, you, you can see that there's been a reduction in visitors more generally um, to, to Turkey. But there is very much kind of a sense um, that, well, Istanbul is, is resilient. It has bounced back from previously um, dark periods and will do so again.
0: One thing that was remarkable about what happened was the media clampdown. There were reporting restrictions on television and radio coverage, weren't they, as soon as the bomb mm-hmm. happened?
5: Indeed, and uh, also some restrictions on, on social media. There was a blanket uh, ban on, on media reporting, um, which you know has, is not something new in, in Turkey, and, and is also indicative of the, the status quo in terms of the, the current government. Um, so I, I'm not sure that was entirely surprising to to people who who live in Turkey and who follow Turkey closely. But yes, striking as, as viewed from the outside.
0: Tell us a little bit more now about what Turkey's options are when we have the the woman accused of being the bomber telling police that she was a special intelligence officer for the Armed Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, and a Syrian affiliate. What options are open to Turkey now?
5: Well, given obviously the the history um, here um, in terms of of Turkey and uh, and the Kurds, uh, you know we. What may, we may see some form of, of retaliation um, uh, from Turkey. Uh, there are a number of options I think on the table here. Um, the various Kurdish groups have been uh, responsible for carrying out attacks in Istanbul before, um, not for, for some time, as to my knowledge. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting, I think, to watch and see what, what, will ha- what will unfold over the next days and weeks in terms of what kind of. Uh, retaliation, if if it takes that, um, the Turkish government will engage in.
0: Mary Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Twenty Four. You with the Globalist. Let's have a quick recap now of the latest headlines. The US and Russia's most senior spy chiefs have met face-to-face for the first time since Moscow invaded Ukraine. The CIA director, William Burns, and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Naryshkin, held talks in the Turkish capital, Ankara. Meanwhile, the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, says Russia leaving Ukraine would make the single biggest difference to world affairs. Speaking at the G20 summit in Bali, Mr Sunak said Vladimir Putin should have attended the summit to face world leaders about the global implications of the war. Paris has overtaken London as Europe's biggest stock exchange. Brexit, the pounds plunge against the dollar, fears of a recession in the UK and the rebound of France's heavyweight luxury shares such as LVMH have all caused a reversal. German authorities are stepping up preparations for emergency cash deliveries in case of a blackout. The country is facing possible power cuts arising from the war in Ukraine. And Earth's population is expected to pass 8 billion today. The figures come thanks to longer lifespans and the rapid growth of some nations in Asia and sub Saharan Africa. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. 937 in. Uh, Tel Aviv. 8.37 in Rome, which is where we head next, to hear from Enrico Franceschini, the London correspondent for La Repubblica. He'll be doing the newspaper for us today. Good morning to Enrico. Good morning. Let's uh, find out what's in the newspapers. What's happening in the papers?
3: Well, uh, there is an interesting story in the New York Times. Uh, In a few days, the World Cup of football starts. Sadly, for me without Italy for the second time in a row. But the fact that it's played in Qatar creates many problems. Of course, uh, the weather, the remote location, the LGBT rights, uh, the foreign minister of the UK said recently something like, uh, don't do anything uh, too gay if you want to be all right in Qatar during uh, the uh, cup. But another problem is alcohol. And the New York Times reports that the hospitality tent uh, of Budweiser, one of the most famous uh, beer brands in the world, have, has been moved uh, to a less prominent uh, position outside the stadium. Now, uh, Budweiser is one of the most important uh, sponsors, uh, traditionally, of the World Cup. It's always been like that. And and beer and football, as we know, go well uh, together. Um, No drinks are allowed for the first time inside the stadiums during the games. But... uh, Uh, Qatar um, allowed uh, the sale of alcohol outside the stadium. Uh, The problem is that uh, apparently the tent uh, of Budweiser was too visible and uh, it seems that someone from the royal family of the Emir of Qatar uh, asked that it moved, moved more far away. Uh, Budweiser didn't take it very well because they're paying a lot of money for it. And so this is uh, turning into uh, a bit of a problem Uh, uh, in the end. Qatar wanted the World Cup as a form of publicity, publicity promotion for a small country uh, that is uh, modern and ancient at the same time, and uh, uh, this can can become also bad publicity. Uh, we'll, we will see as the Cup goes along.
0: It is one of those problems inherent of trying to bring a, a very large football event to a tightly controlled um, Muslim country. But you you do you do wonder, don't you, that that. That perhaps, with all the huge controversy surrounding the the World Cup in Qatar, the human rights abuses, the the you know the way that the the, the buildings were constructed, this dare I say it might be the one thing that football fans notice.
3: They will notice definitely. They will notice uh, that the, the sale of alcohol is not uh, is not allowed. Uh, it's it's interesting because. Uh, uh, the World Cup is supposed to be a, a great party of football and uh, and beer is, is, is part of it, uh, in, particularly in England, in Germany, in other countries as well. And, and there are expected uh, um, thousands or perhaps even hundreds of thousands of fans uh, uh, going to Qatar for the first time uh, for the Cup. Uh, so this c- can turn uh, badly for for the country and uh, as you said uh, uh, I mean a small Muslim country wants to to show that they are not only a gas producing powerhouse but uh, maybe a, a force uh, in in a global world and football is a, you know a global brand uh, this can turn against themselves
0: I wonder though whether it's actually the opposite that Qatar turns around and says well We don't generally care for these traditions which are associated with football because we are Qatar and we, we, you know, we like the publicity, but it's not absolutely necessary.
3: Well, we will see how how they have uh, evaluated the, the, the risks and opportunities of uh, the World Cup. I was reading another article that says that uh, Russia spent around 12 billion dollars to organize the previous World Cup. Well, Qatar looks like they spent 200 billion dollars. It's a huge investment, even for a a very rich, uh, small country. Uh, the investment that um, should pay somehow. We will see if it pays.
0: Let's move uh, to another country where there are controversies surrounding the the playing of football. And there's a story in Haaretz about what's happening in Israel.
3: Exactly. Uh, Well, we all know uh, Shabbat, uh, Saturday, is the the day of prayer and rest uh, of the Jewish faith. Uh, uh, But soccer games, football games, are one of the few uh, aspects of life in Israel that do not favour Uh, religious people do not respect them. It's the the day in which uh, the uh, football games of the major professional league are played is the only day that people can go to the stadium to, to watch the games because uh, uh, Shabbat actually starts on, on Friday after sunset at sunset time, but uh, many businesses uh, uh, work until uh, Friday afternoon. So it's, it's not that they can play on Friday afternoon like Saturday in, in, in England, for example, or in other countries. So um, now, according to Arez, The Religious Zionist Party, which is an extreme right-wing party, basically the moral victor of the elections in Israel of a few days ago, wants to change that. It's not clear how. This party will be part of the government uh, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, a a right wing coalition uh, that returns Netanyahu to power. Netanyahu is the long standing uh, king of Israel, as they call him in in his country. Uh, He's been prime minister longer than anybody else in the history of Israel. um um, according to ares perhaps uh, the um, uh, religious zionist party would like to move the games as i said to friday to early afternoon friday before sunset or to play the games uh, on weekdays, uh, but uh, the fans might not agree with that. It's one of the problems for for Netanyahu is, uh, uh, was was been asked formally by the president of the republic to form a government after his uh, coalition won the elections, uh, the fifth election in, the, in less than four years in a very unstable country. Um, and uh, what will happen depends of how the government will be formed. Uh, the religious Zionists are the third party they are in, in Israel right now. They are very strong. They are essential for the coalition. Maybe Netanyahu will try to enlarge the coalition to more central parties to, to control the, 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 the right wing. Uh, it was expected that the Uh, religious Zionists to push for changes uh, toward Israeli settlements in favor of Israeli settlements against the Palestinians, against the rights of uh, Israeli Arab citizens. Uh, But uh, the next secular target of this uh, small party, a relatively small party, as Haaretz says, might be football. And this is a risk because uh, to attack football, as we were saying uh, before about Qatar, can become very unpopular.
0: Enrico Franceschini, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle24. You're with The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm
4: with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week For the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: It's time to talk cinema with Karen Krasanovich, film critic and regular Monocle 24 contributor and channeling Italian linen this morning.
6: You're very kind, very kind.
0: Looking as good as you sound, Miss Krasanovich. Right. What news from the cinema...
6: Well, there's just so much. I don't know where to start. Let's try and squeeze it through this small hole and start talking about, okay, we can start filming in Greece. We're going to see more movies shot in Greece now because the Greek government have uh, come up with 40% cash rebate and 30% tax relief program. You think, so what? That's a big deal.
0: (laughs) It's a big deal. Tell us about it. But then in a moment, explain to us that Every country seems yes, to be offering tax breaks no, to the film do, industry. They do. So, what's so great about Greece, apart from the fact that it's probably a very, very nice place to go and film, if you
6: are a film company? It's consistent. I mean, it's got consistent weather, of course. Um, you know, it's it's got great light. Um, Netflix, for example, has shot more than ten productions in the country, including uh, Glass Onion, the the second the, the the sequel to Knives Out, and Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter, which is very good. I'm very, very, very plauded last last year. Um, now, the the reason that this is important, because it brings a lot of investment into the country. And like Malta that we discussed a few weeks ago, I mean, that they've been using this tax rebate for some time. But, for example, Fiji has 75 percent, Malaysia has 30 percent, New Zealand has 20 percent. And the UK has up to twenty five percent, with another project cap of da, da 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 da. And there's all sorts of rules and regulations. And this is why we need producers <laughs> and accountants to figure all of this out. But it's not what's important is not only the weather, which certainly helps, uh, and also historical backdrops, etc. But infrastructure. Now this is why the UK brings a lot of uh, productions here because it's got the studios, it's got the technicians, it's got transport which is really important, and also things that you don't think about, like catering and makeup and mm, things like that. Which
0: would be actually pretty easy to do if you are in Greece, because they have that as well. Probably a bit harder
6: to get to Fiji. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. So if you wonder why don't we see more things in Fiji, that's why.
0: It takes, because you have to get there by airplane or by cruise ship. Exactly. And it's a long, oh, But long, it's long long also travelling
6: over the country and things like that. The roads, if the roads aren't great, it's going to be harder to film.
0: What does this do in terms of when people are deciding what films to make mm. and does how much does this actually influence a producer's you know choice as to thinking, okay, well, we could do this film and it would have to be filmed here, and that wouldn't look so great, but oh look, Greece has just rocked up with this wonderful sunny trip okay'll <laughs> we we'll go for, sunny trip' we'll, we'll go for that one,
6: please <laughs> i know I know what I would do well it's it's not just that you have to look at. At, uh, let's say, if if you're filming someplace that's, that might have war, I mean, that's another consideration. One, I know one production that was supposed to be shot in, in a certain part of Africa, and they've had to move it because, you know, it's just not safe for people to be there uh, at that point. Um, it's not only—it's an option, and you've got to weigh up the costs and also the—well— the the rebates, but also the costs. And it's it's just another option. And as we know, like with stars and, and directors and everybody else, uh, there's not always room where you want to shoot. So, hey, we want to shoot in Athens, so I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait another couple years because we're booked up. Okay. So it's rotating.
0: Let's talk about Steven Spielberg. I'd love to. <laughs> I, it's astonishing this the, the, the creativity of this man. But we we have a new film called The Fablemans Tell us a little bit about it and why some people are saying that this could be his biggest hit. Isn't which which I mean that would be something to achieve given the size of the hits that he's had in the past.
6: Well, I'm seeing it Thursday, so I'm very excited about that. Now we know that he's done dinosaurs and aliens and sharks. He's done Holocaust. He's done D-Day. Now um, and he also did his first musical. Uh, Which
0: didn't do so well. Which didn't do so well. West Side Story didn't do well. Why is that?
6: Because of COVID. Simple
0: as that? Pretty much. And also
6: they were experimenting with releases, um, exhibition releases and streaming releases. And a lot of films rely on a certain demographic to come out and see them. Now, The Fablemans is a semi-autobiographical look at him growing up as a film-obsessed teenager in Arizona and Northern California. You think, eh, who cares? But... Steven Spielberg is such a good storyteller that um, this is getting great feedback from audiences, and people are very excited. So he's he's going to try this different way of approaching releasing, and also seeing who's going to come and see it and who it attracts. But people are very excited. It's uh, It sounds amazing and people that I know have seen it said it'll, it just will knock you out. And it's incredible that he's getting better and better as he's getting older and he's taking more risks, which is amazing.
0: Fabulous. Karen Krasanovich, film critic and regular Monocle 24 contributor, thank you for joining me in the studio. You are The Globalist. <laughs> look up to the sky at night and you'd be forgiven for thinking that apart from the expected stars, planets and meteors, it's pretty empty up there. Well this is not the case it's a tip so much so that there's a competition for a British company to launch a clean-up mission so to tell us more, I'm joined by the author, David Badanas, He joins me in the studio. Very good morning to you, David. Good morning, my dear. So how me- how messy is it up there?
7: It's incredibly messy. You know, you go to the cinema and like you leave your popcorn and stuff. Now imagine like you've been going with your family to the cinema for 70 years and everybody leaves their popcorn, and then every now and then somebody runs through with a Ferrari sports car, and a, and a blow dryer, and a um, a, a lawnmower, uh, and the, imagine that the uh, the cinema is the size of planet Earth. That's kind of what it's like, but messier.
0: The fact remains, though, is that space is a very, very, very big place. So is is this is this large mess that you've just described? Is this concentrated in certain parts? or What happens to rubbish in space? Does it
7: sort of just float around? Funny you should ask. It turns out there's a couple of conveyor belts in space. So there's one place about 300 miles up, which is we really like, because it's not hard to get to, and uh, you can do a, a, a whole bunch of like GPS satellites and stuff down there. And there's other things, there's another belt, 25,000 miles up, which has a one wonderful property that um, things that are there seem to hover directly above the earth. So you know when you walk by houses and you see these satellite dishes aiming up, they don't have to be changed because they're pointing at a spot just about 25,000 miles up.
0: So you you mentioned the idea of, uh, what was it, Ferraris and and popcorn and what have you. That's not what's up there, is it? What is it? Is it stuff that we have sent up?
7: Yes, it's entirely uh, human stuff. But with all the junk, and you're quite right, space is surprisingly empty and surprisingly large. It's sort of like the, I don't know, the, the policy. plans of certain major political figures and stuff. There's there's a large void where they're supposed to be thought. Um, Anyways, but it's so big. So at the beginning, people thought you could just leave stuff up there. There was no problem at all, kind of like the national parks. But there's been so much stuff up there that it builds up over the years. And also, it turns out if one satellite hits another, or if a micrometeorite hits a satellite, what comes out is not just one particle, but often thousands of particles. And they're traveling super fast, If you see a really fast car on the street near you, 50, 60 miles an hour, these are 17,000 miles an hour.
0: So we now have a space that's not full of space anymore. It's full of the junk that we've put up there. Uh, And we now have this competition to go and clear it up. And someone has described the the, the project as trying to find the equivalent of space's bin lorry. Exactly. So tell us about it.
7: So uh, a bin lorry has to go around. And imagine if the uh, the stuff you're trying to capture isn't like a little wrapping from a candy bar that sits there, but it's a wrapping from the candy bar that has a jet engine attached and is traveling at 17,000 miles an hour. So you have to speed up to catch it. It's sort of like arresting Italian criminals in Ferraris. You have to be going just as fast, go right next to them, and then put something around them. It's really hard.
0: So tell us a little bit more about the companies and and the plans that are being um tasked with this rather complicated job.
7: Yeah, so the European Space Agency has been funding some people for this. NASA in the US has been doing some funding. The problem is it's there's so much space. It's much, much larger than planet Earth. Things are zipping around on these... Uh, conve- uh, they're sort of like limited conveyor belts, but they're still pretty big, its entire Earth orbit. So in a sense, who should pay for it? Who should pay for the cleanup?
0: Well, there is that question, isn't there? Because... If you are a company sending out satellites up into space, just in the way that you were describing people going to the silver and leaving their own popcorn boxes at the end, arguably you should go to the companies and say, well, you put that thing up there. You you tidy up after your own mess.
7: You're entirely right. And in fact, there's a nice analogy there. Uh, Space is a sort of place where uh, anybody has access and there's no controls, very much like the oceans and very much like the internet. So I think the law of the sea is trying to be applied to the internet now, uh, who's responsible if you're in these uh, places outside of traditional uh, legal controls, and the same thing with outer space. So I think if you can ever get international authorities to sort of uh, supervise without terrible censorship the internet, there'd be a similar attitude in earth government and world government to uh, help clear up things in outer space.
0: It's an interesting thing there but who has governance over space. It is something that at this point you think actually, well this is where an element of responsibility would be important. However, the minute that someone on earth decides to carve up space we're we're arguably in in quite a lot of trouble here aren't we
7: totally because at the beginning there was this real even during the the cold war when russia and uh, the us were really at loggerheads nuclear missiles aimed at each other there was this real respect sort of like competing athletes often have respect for each other or uh, uh, think of world war 1 fighter pilots you know having a certain amount of respect and so there would be an obligation to sort of clean up the area
0: finally David, tell us a little bit about us as human beings. This is what you kind of specialise in. Why are we so loath to tidy up after ourselves?
7: I think it's because we live the world in the—we live our lives in the first person. I do this, I do that, and we see everybody else in the third person. Religious leaders across time have talked about the I-thou relation and attempt to cross it. And it's really beautiful when that happens. Music, love, children—well, sometimes with children—can really make you want to cross that border. But the reason we have to push it is because we also, as human beings, have impulses to look out for number one. So is there something wrong with us for, do, for, for leaving all this junk up in space? Somebody once said that if humans were angels, we wouldn't need laws. If humans were apes, laws would be inefficacious. We're stuck right in between. We can do the magnificent thing of getting to Earth's orbit, and then we throw our junk out the window.
0: A man who always cleans up after himself. David Bedanis. thank you so much for joining me in the studio. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands. And our studio manager was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, more music on the way. The Briefing will be live with you at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.